The episode you're about to hear is sponsored by Journal of Experimental Biology. The journal is published by the Company of Biologists, a nonprofit that has been supporting and inspiring the biological community since 1925. JEB publishes research about the form and function of organisms at all levels of biological organization. For this episode, we partner with Journal of Experimental Biology to highlight a scientist that often publishes in their journal. To find out more about the Journal of Experimental Biology, visit jeb.biologists.org. One last thing before we get started. This is the last show of season four. So we want to take a moment to thank all of our guests from the past season. We especially want to thank you, the listener. We've been really pleased at how our audience size and engagement has grown. Without your support, the show wouldn't be possible. So if you aren't already a patron, consider becoming one at patreon.com slash bigbio, or just make a one-time donation at the website, bigbiology.org. Over the summer, we'll be hard at work recording interviews for Season 5, which will begin in early September 2022. But while we get ready for it, be on the lookout for some crossovers with other podcasts that'll show up in our feed over the summer. Please also subscribe to Big Biology wherever you get your podcasts, so you'll automatically receive new episodes as they drop. And finally, we want to hear from you. Please give us your feedback. What do you like? What don't you like? Besides Marty. (laughs) Are there certain topics or issues you'd like to hear us cover? Guests, do you think it would be great on the show? Let us know. All feedback is good feedback. And now, here's the show. In intro bio courses, we typically teach students about evolution using just a few simple traits. Think wrinkled versus smooth peas in Mendel's experiments, or the evolution of white versus black peppered moths in parts of 19th century England. Both of these traits are known to be controlled by just a few alleles at a single genetic locus, which confers on them relatively simple patterns of inheritance. But obviously not all traits are like this. In fact, we teach much more rarely about complex traits that depend on large collections of lower level traits. Think of traits like flux of amino acids through a biochemical pathway, or the efficiency with which your body extracts energy from food, or how fast Marty could run when being chased by a grizzly bear. Those are all big T traits, but each of them clearly depends on a set of other structures and processes at lower levels of biological organization, each of which is also an identifiable and measurable trait. Take fluxes of organic compounds through glycolysis. We can measure their total flux, and that matters a lot to metabolic rate. But flux also depends on the amounts and catalytic properties of each of the enzymes in glycolysis. If there's selection on total flux, how do the underlying components change? Are they all equally capable of doing their jobs? Or are some parts of the pathways more effective than others? Or take Marty running from that bear. His top speed depends on things like flux through glycolysis, but also the size and attachment of his running muscles, standing levels of phosphagens, the length of his legs, overall coordination of running effort, which probably is quite low. Same question. If there's selection on running speed, how do the underlying components change? Are the parts equally impacted, or do some change more or less than others? On today's show, we talk about this mystery with Graham Scott from McMaster University. Graham studies what's poetically called the oxygen cascade. The oxygen cascade is a complex trait, and Graham and his colleagues are interested in how they evolve when populations are subjected to strong selection for high maximal metabolism. In the show, we talk about two approaches in which this kind of selection has occurred. The first involves artificial selection experiments. Over the past few decades, a number of research groups have artificially selected on running endurance in rodents. 
Typically, these studies use a few populations that are either selected to be ultramarathoners or to be couch potatoes. I know which group I'm in. They then measure the capacities of all the components of the oxygen cascade. The other approach Graham and colleagues have taken is to observe the outcomes of selection on wild populations across environmental gradients, things like large elevational gradients in mountain ranges. We talk with Graham about studies he and his students and colleagues have done on oxygen cascades in deer mice. Deer mice have the broadest elevational gradients of any mammal in North America. There are lowland populations in Nebraska at nearly sea level, and highland populations that live at the top of Mount Evans in Colorado at over 14,000 feet. The oxygen cascades in those highland populations are seriously challenged, because mice there not only have to produce high amounts of metabolic heat to stay warm, which require high rates of oxygen consumption, but they have to do it in air that contains about 40% less oxygen than their relative experience in Nebraska. On the conceptual side, we talk with Graham about two major alternative theories for how oxygen cascades should evolve. The first one is a 40-year-old idea called symorphosis. The idea basically says that all steps in a complex pathway, like the oxygen cascade, should have capacities that are more or less matched to one another. That matching should occur both because selection will increase the capacity of steps that are limiting and decrease the capacity of steps that are overbuilt. Because overbuilding, as I know well from many engineered projects in my lab, is costly and wasteful. The second idea comes from work on fluxes through metabolic pathways. It basically says that no, the steps don't necessarily all have the same capacities. Rather, their capacities vary for many reasons, and we can assign a kind of relative control coefficient that describes each step's relative influence on the total. We then talk with Graham about some of those other reasons. Why some steps in a complex sequence may be constrained because they play other roles in the organism. A great example of that appears to be hemoglobin genotypes in deer mice. In a paper this year in Journal of Experimental Biology, led by Catherine Ivey, Graham and colleagues show that hemoglobin is linked to patterns of breathing by mice in ways that may have nothing to do with hemoglobin's role in transporting oxygen in the blood. Ah, uh, mystery of mysteries. Join us for this capacious colloquium on characterizing the co-control of complex characters. Dude, WTF. I'm Art Woods. And I'm Marty Martin. And this is the last episode of Big Biology in Season 4. Graham, it's uh, super nice to have you on this show. We're excited to talk about many things, including how vertebrates deliver oxygen throughout their bodies. And we want to use that as, as a kind of approach to this very general question, which Marty and I, and I think many people find incredibly interesting, and that is how complex physiological systems evolve. So we're going to do that by focusing on a set of your recent papers in Journal of Experimental Biology, especially this review that you had last year with Anne Diel, and then another one, a more recent one, that was led by Catherine Ivey, and that interestingly also Actually, a lot of your stuff includes my colleague here at University of Montana, Zach Chevron. So it'd be like super fun to dig into the, the details of this. But I wanted to start just by asking you to describe this general oxygen problem. So in vertebrates, oxygen gets from the atmosphere to the mitochondria. Let's just sort of take that apart. So what are the steps by which oxygen gets there? Yeah, the, the oxygen transport cascade has a number of steps. So if you think about a human, for example, or other mammals, the first thing we need to do to get oxygen to our tissues is we have to breathe. So we inhale air, which contains about 21% oxygen. Then the oxygen gets into our lungs and close to the gas exchange surfaces within our lungs. And then it diffuses into the blood. And then our heart pumps that blood throughout the body 
And then the oxygen, when it's transported in the blood, it's bound to a protein called hemoglobin primarily. And then it circulates to the tissues. It's released from hemoglobin at the tissues, and then it diffuses from the blood in capillaries into the cells in tissues throughout the body. And then once it does that, it's used by mitochondria, the powerhouses of the cell, to make ATP by oxidative phosphorylation. The opposite transport happens for carbon dioxide primarily. So when oxidative phosphorylation happens, carbon dioxide is one of the main products that is produced. And then it travels in the reverse direction and is ultimately eliminated when we exhale our breath. So, Gary, you're talking about vertebrates largely. Would you say that, you know, in general, the, the same sort of cascade, the same series of steps are similar across non-vertebrates? I mean, in terms of the, di the different steps to get oxygen in and waste products out? No, things get really different when we start talking about a lot of different invertebrates. I mean, there's even variation within the vertebrates. So in, I mentioned humans and mammals, where we inhale air into our lungs. Aquatic vertebrates don't use lungs. Generally, they use gills. Uh, so even that part of the oxygen transport pathway is very different. But then when you get into, say, for example, insects, they have a very different means of transporting oxygen. Certainly not my expertise, but they make use of tracheals, which actually allow gas from the air to, to transmit deep into their body tissues. So they don't need the same circulatory mechanisms for moving oxygen around the body that vertebrates do. So it's very different, but in general, the principles are the same, that oxygen needs to move by sometimes convective processes where it's transported by bulk flow of something, or it has to move by diffusion from one place to another. This is great to bring up insects. So, so I am going to threaten you with some uh, insect questions later, but, <laughs> but let's get through the details of some of the, you know, the cascade invertebrates before we, before we go there. Yeah, and, that, and that's kind of the, the motivation of the question. I mean, there, there's definitely differences, you know, like you say, even within the vertebrates. But my, my question is sort of leading to the functional similarity. I mean, is there any level of organization from, you know, the behaviors that first get oxygen into the body from the outside to the in down to the molecular level. Are there any generalities that you can sort of apply? Are there any consistencies and any level of organization? Because where we're going to go, I think what, what gets you excited about this in Art and Me Too is these, this concept of physiological integration and then the evolution of these complex systems. So I'm trying to start to move us in the direction of what kind of generalities can we say, given that insects are insects and mammals are mammals? I mean, all uh, animals use mitochondria to make ATP by oxidative phosphorylation. So that's certainly shared in common. They all contain a series of very small vessels that in one way or another allow oxygen to diffuse into cells that contain mitochondria. And so there are already at least a couple of steps involved in oxygen transport and use that are similar in general across different types of animals. So in that way, the, the same kind of principles apply if we're thinking about pathways that have multiple steps and how those pathways facilitate oxygen transport and then how they might change through the process of evolution. Yeah, it's that, you know, there are many, many steps to this process, just like there are a lot of academic steps in uh, art's career. <laughs> and, and just like art's career, it's kind of hard to understand which ones matter. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> um, but but just stick with the physiological systems. Is there, in this sort of general sense of how vertebrates and invertebrates might be similar, are there steps that matter most? 
are there similarities in the rate limiting step, the one that controls oxygen flux, or is the sort of points of control or points of most influence different too among taxa? I would say that the ideas that people have had in that regard can vary from there being one rate limiting step to oxygen flow to the mitochondria to a situation where every single step in the chain of events or the the pathway that oxygen needs to travel through are equally rate limiting. So I would say that probably the reality is somewhere in between where there isn't a single rate limiting step that influences oxygen transport, but some steps in the pathway probably have more influence than others. That sounds like a typical biological answer, right? Oh, somewhere in between. <laughs> yeah. So, so let's, let's just dwell on, on some of the big ideas about this very thing for a moment. And I, I want to talk for a few minutes about this idea of symorphosis and then maybe switch over and talk about physiological control coefficients that come out of metabolic control theory. So let's just start with symorphosis as an overall idea. So this is something proposed by Taylor and Weibel, I guess, in the 1980s. So, so what is the idea and how did they test that idea? Yeah, the idea is that as an integrated system, the oxygen transport pathway should be built reasonably. So they argued that its main goal is to transport oxygen to mitochondria. And having multiple steps, they argued that each step in the pathway should have a relatively similar capacity. Because if you have excess capacity that can't be used, then it doesn't make any sense. It's an excess it's wasteful and that any excess capacity should be reduced by natural selection. So selected against by the cost that it incurred. Yeah. So if you have uh, something like the oxygen transport pathway where oxygen flows in a series of steps, it makes sense that each step in that pathway might have an equal capacity to transport oxygen. And if you have more at one step, then that excess capacity isn't actually going to do anything because uh, the capacities of the other steps might actually limit transport. So that was the rationale behind symorphosis. And, and just maybe one more way to say it, which is that the outcome of that is that there's no obvious point of control. Rather, the control is shared across all the steps in the in the cascade, right? Right. And shared equally. Okay. And so so what do they do to... Before you go there, Art, can I just build on the, the, the last little piece that I want to make sure that I get my head around? So how is it, why is it that this excess capacity is supposed to go away? I mean, I think what I'm hearing you to say when I remember from reading this is that there is some kind of actual cost to maintaining this extra capacity. And if you're not using it, the fit response in an evolutionary sense would be to lose it so that everything ends up getting winnowed down to the kind of, I think they used to use even optimal, right? Didn't, if this, if I remember correctly, this comes from an optimal, not, you know, okay, functional, but optimal perspective. Yeah, that's exactly it. That uh, there should be a cost to maintain these structures and maintain these systems. And so if, if it's a, a capacity that's never actually going to be used, then it doesn't make sense to waste to waste energy to build those structures beyond the capacity that will ever be realized for sure. So like an example would be like if the lung diffusing capacity was it, they wouldn't have super giant lungs that are totally over designed that take up a lot of space and a lot of materials if if they don't need all that excess capacity. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, okay, so can we talk about, yeah, what did, what did Taylor and Weibel do early on to sort of establish empirical support for this idea? The first series of studies that they did to test this idea was 
quite comparative. So they studied African mammals across a huge range of body sizes, and they measured their maximal capacity to consume oxygen. So they would take these animals, get them to run on a treadmill, and actually run at their maximal exercise capacity. So their maximal aerobic sustained exercise capacity. And what they could do is measure those animals' maximal ability to consume oxygen from the air. So that would represent the maximal transport rate, the overall capacity of their system to transport and consume oxygen. What was the biggest species they had there? I'm just envisioning, how do you make an elephant sprint on a <laughs> treadmill? <laughs> oh, geez. They didn't have elephants okay. in that particular <laughs> study. Um, That's a big treadmill. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'd have to go back and look at the studies again. I don't remember exactly. But yeah, what they did was they just looked across this really broad range of body sizes and looked at how maximal aerobic capacity varied across all those species. And then what they did was they used a series of approaches, many of them using microscopy, to look at the structural capacity to transport oxygen at each of the steps in the pathway and looked at how it varied as a function of body size. So for example, what they would do is look at the lungs, the structures of the lungs, the alveoli inside the lungs that are important for gas exchange, they would determine the overall surface area and thicknesses of those gas exchange barriers. And then what they could do is calculate the diffusing capacity of the lungs, for example. And they would do similar things in the, the muscles that support exercise. They did things like measure the maximum heart rate and stroke volume, so the ability to transport blood. And they looked at these relationships across these broad ranges of species. And the data they found is that, at least for many of the steps of the oxygen transport pathway, the way in which VO2 max, or the, the aerobic capacity that I talked about, oxygen consumption during exercise, the way that actually changed with body mass was very similar to how the amount of mitochondria in the muscles changed as a function of body mass. I see. So, so you're saying that the way VO2 max scales with body size was paralleled by the way these various other traits that they measured scale body size. And because they all scale in the same way, that implies like some sort of evolutionary coordination across all of them as body sizes increase or decrease. Is that, is that a reasonable way to say that? Right, exactly. And the exception was the lungs. The lungs actually appeared to be overbuilt for aerobic exercise. But Otherwise, the other steps in the oxygen transport pathway did show this parallel variation in association with body size. What was it about the lungs? Is it the size, the surface area, the alveolar density? I mean, what everything? Well, at, at, there's various potential explanations. One is that the lung is built early in life during the developmental process, and so it has to grow to a capacity that the organism might need at some point in its life. It's not as plastic in later life in response to things like activity levels or seasonal variation that something like the muscle might be. So that's one potential explanation. Another is simply that the lungs do more than one thing. So they don't just transport oxygen, but their structure is determined by things like CO2 excretion, uh, respiratory water loss. The lungs is also, are also an important source of water loss, so that might constrain the, the growth of the lungs. Uh, so there's various other processes that could influence lung structure. 
Has anybody ever invoked the possibility? I mean, that's a major route of exposure of infection, too. Uh-huh. I knew you were going to say that, Marty. Uh, you, knew, you knew I was going to do that. I mean, my group's been working on scaling in the immune system for a long time. We find some surprising hyperallometries. Has it ever been proposed or investigated that the lungs are super big because they're chock full of all of these defensive mechanisms? I, not that I'm aware of. It's an, it's an interesting idea, though. Yeah, once again, the immune system gets neglected. <laughs> <laughs> but, but Marty, no, no, but I, I would say that should lead to the opposite prediction, right? That lungs would be would have less area than you would expect because less area would, would create less surface area for exposure to pathogens, right? Well, that is a defense, but if what Graham is saying that developmentally you have to have bigger lungs because it can't be flexible later on, you have these really big lungs. That's an obligation. So you have to have, I'm talking about the sort of immune content of the lungs and how that relates to surface area of the lungs I see, is, I see. you know, okay. complicated. There'd be a lot of work that would be necessary. Super difficult research, which probably has something to do with why there aren't data like that. Anyway, okay, thanks for indulging me on the immunology. So so let's just talk about the fate of symorphosis and, you know, what, what you just said seems really reasonable and like a great kind of default expectation for the way physiological systems should evolve. And yet it's also my sense that symorphosis has fallen out of favor as a as an organizing idea for many complex physiological systems. So I guess what what is the consensus and what, what's the fate of the idea? Well, it was a incredibly contentious shortly after it was proposed for a number of reasons. So one of the main reasons that comes to mind is that firstly, physiology determines the transport of oxygen, not just the structure. So capacities that they measured using morphological techniques, just looking at structures, isn't the only thing that determines transport. There's also physiological things at play, like flows of blood through the lungs. But there were a lot of other theoretical arguments that evolutionary physiologists made that made a lot of sense to why we wouldn't expect symorphosis in all cases as well. We don't necessarily always expect things to be optimally designed. On the one hand, sometimes uh, developmental processes aren't perfect, so we don't necessarily expect a perfect matching across different organ systems. And also, although aerobic capacity is something that is a really important outcome of this oxygen transport pathway, the different organs in the oxygen transport pathway, as I alluded to before, also do other things. So the heart obviously is important for circulating oxygen, but it also circulates metabolic fuels, it circulates immune cells, it's, it's important for thermoregulation, it does a lot of different things. And so the idea that any of those organ systems should be optimized just for one process is a bit simplistic. So there were a lot of those kind of theoretical arguments at the time. And then a reanalysis of a lot of data was also done by a lot of people. And they, they didn't always find that symorphosis was supported in quite as nice a way as what the early Taylor and Bible studies suggested. I mean, it, it seems to have fallen out of favor before it percolated into other realms of physiology. Is, is that wrong? Or has the concept of symorphosis, when it was active or even today, mostly been in this area of metabolism has it been in digestion? Has the immunologists talk about it? Have, you know, endocrine system, has it been applied in any other context? In a very limited way, but actually mostly by Taylor and Bible themselves. So, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think in terms of gas exchange, various other people have used it at least as a null hypothesis against which they can test their predictions. But Taylor and Bible did actually look at fuel transport as well. By fuels, I mean things like carbohydrates and lipids in the circulation and how pathways of transporting those sorts of things to mitochondria 
scaled across animals or varied in association with differences in aerobic capacity between species. Those sorts of things have been looked at as well. And did they find similar levels of support in those other systems? Yeah, some some support in those systems as well. But beyond metabolic processes, I don't think so. I, I don't think it's a, a theory that ever caught on outside of metabolism. So, okay, so let's move on to an alternative idea that you invoke in the review paper. So this is what you call the physiological control concept, which I think comes from metabolic control theory. And let me let me try to articulate how I understand it, and then you can correct me. But it's that if you have a sequence of things that are happening in a complex pathway, you can assign sort of coefficients to each of those steps that reflect something about the relative amount of control that each of those steps exert over the total flux through through the pathway. Is that is that a reasonable description of that idea? Yeah, that exactly. So different steps in a pathway all have some influence on the the movement of substances through the pathway. They just don't have to have the exact same influence. Yeah, yeah. So so this idea came out of people thinking about fluxes through metabolic pathways, right? So so how do you apply that to the oxygen cascade? In some ways, the, the process is very similar there, where you've got something moving through a series of steps. Then the challenge is to ask the question, well, if we alter the capacity of different steps in this pathway, what influence does that have on the movement through the entire pathway? And most of the time when people have actually assessed that question, they've done so using theoretical modeling. So there are a series of mathematical equations that really nicely describe cardiorespiratory oxygen transport. So the transport of oxygen from the air right to the mitochondria. And those are physical principles of oxygen diffusion and just mass transport at different steps. And so what we can do is use those mathematical equations to model the entire pathway. And then what we can do is do a sensitivity analysis and change particular variables in that model. So we can do things like double the diffusing capacity for oxygen in the tissues or in the lungs and see what influence it might have on the overall oxygen consumption rate of the organism. And so in that way, we can actually look at the relative influence of different steps under different conditions. I understand why you do this in a modeling context, but could you also do it in an empirical way, right? By going in and somehow experimentally manipulating steps individually and asking what the effect is on the overall flux. Yeah, it's a lot harder to do, but people have done some studies where they can try and manipulate individual steps. So an example is uh, there are drugs that can change the amount of red blood cells in the blood. Erythropoietin, for example, can be injected and stimulate red blood cell production, and that can influence the amount of oxygen the blood can carry and influence that capacity to circulate oxygen throughout the body. So people can use those sorts of approaches to experimentally manipulate different steps. I mean, I, I like that approach. This seems more intuitive, I guess, and potentially more tractable. The coefficients, I mean, how, how, are, how are these sort of systems put together? What's really compelling to me about them is that you sort of have this endpoint, this process that we're trying to explain what's contributing to it. But how is that put together? And maybe think about or answer that question in the context of which parts in that system are the most influential. Yeah, I think there's been a number of attempts to model the system in different types of animals, both mammals and birds. And I think overwhelmingly, 
the capacity for oxygen to diffuse into the muscle tissues tends to have the greatest amount of control. So if you manipulate that capacity, it has a pretty substantial influence over the overall oxygen transport rate. The circulatory system, so the heart's ability to circulate blood, also has a pretty significant influence, whereas the, the lungs, the breathing and diffusing capacity of the lungs, those tend to have or tend to be less important than the other steps in the pathway, at least at sea level. I saw you trying to avoid saying the phrase control coefficient. So, yeah, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so so why why is it? Why is the tissue diffusing capacity so important? Why is a hard question to answer? So, and I'm not really sure. I think uh, it may be that there's differences in the malleability of those different steps in the pathway, such that muscle may be a very plastic tissue that can remodel in response to changing levels of activity or energy demands. So it's something that doesn't really need to be at, at a higher capacity than other steps. And so what that means is maybe it always has a, a lower capacity, but has a greater influence overall. But I'm not really sure. That's something that we're trying to figure out with our ongoing work. Could, could that reflect something about especially high costs in the muscle of sustaining high diffusing capacity like so i'm just making this up but maybe that requires having a high diffusing capacity requires like really dense capillaries in the muscles and those capillaries take up space that could otherwise be devoted to muscle fibers for example is it something like that that explains it yeah quite possibly and also within the actual muscle cells themselves there's a trade-off between the ability to sustain aerobic exercise, long-term exercise performance with mitochondria, and the ability to generate force by muscles. So there's two mainly two different ways in which the muscles produce energy. So there's aerobic oxygen consumption, that's what a marathon runner uses during a race, and then there's this sort of bodybuilder type muscle that's really important for generating large amounts of force. If you have more of one, you have less of the other. And so it may be that, well, we know that there's this ability to restructure the muscle in response to changing energy demands. And so there is this sort of trade-off that might be influencing the aerobic capacity of the muscle and then the amount of capillaries in the muscle and the diffusing capacity for oxygen. So, so what I hear you saying is that the muscle traits are especially plastic. And so muscle can get away with being more limiting under some, some circumstances because it can be remodeled to be less limiting if the sort of physiological and ecological experience of an organism demands it. Is that a fair way to restate what you're saying? Yeah. So to scale this back to the, you know, the somorphous ideas and the things we were talking about before, I'm having a little bit of dif difficulty and it was gr that was a great question, Art, but now I think I'm more confused. If, if, the, if the getting oxygen to the muscles is the important, the most important, and I'm using that, trying to use that word carefully, and I'm not doing a good job of it, but if it's the most important in terms of control, and yet we're talking about, I mean, how, how, do, I, how do I think about that? Because it sounds like it's the most important in terms of control, but at the same time, it's where the, is that because it's where the biggest penalty lies in getting oxygen through this process in the first place? Yeah, so when we do theoretical models of the oxygen transport pathway, the things with the less, the lower capacity tend to have greater control. So if you've got a step that has lower capacity, but then you increase that capacity, then that will reduce the level of control of that particular step. I think that sort of reconciles the, the issue that you're raising. So it's both the most consequential and yet the point at which you can recover 
the penalty. It's just, it's weird that it is the, the biggest influence and yet also the source of sort of resolution at the same time. Yeah. But, but almost by definition, Marty, I think it has to be that way, right? So if it has a high control coefficient, that means that, you know, if you increase its capacity, the total flux increases a lot, right? Yeah. Yeah. So to continue on this theme of maybe because of its plasticity, it disposed itself, you know, to these, to this particular form because of its plasticity, are the rest of the points in the process not plastic? or at least less plastic? Is that even a comparison can be made? In some ways, less plastic, uh, at least based on the, the evidence that from the work that we've done, the muscle seems to be pretty plastic in response to some changes in the environment. And so I think that might be true, but not under all situations, because what I'm thinking of is studies in mammals in response to, to exercise, but under different conditions, there might be seasonal changes that can lead to changes in other steps of the oxygen transport pathway as well. So I think when thinking about why different steps might have greater amounts of control, I'm sort of providing a potential explanation to the, the results of the theoretical modeling. Why is it that the, the muscle has this, this really significant control. Not so much that I would have necessarily predicted it to begin with. <laughs> right, right. And and when, when we talk about control, I guess, like, on some level, I'm coming back to the many conversations we've had on the show about agency. And this is not to say that the organisms are sort of deciding at what point in their physiology or behavior dealing with oxygen, they're working with this thing. But control in that context is a very different thing than control as we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. Well, I think this is a good place to segue to a, a more empirical aspect of yeah one of the examples you talked about in your review paper, and that's this artificial selection experiment on running capacity in rats that I believe was done by Koch and Britain starting about 10 years ago. And as I understand it, so they had different lines of rats, and they selected some of them to be essentially marathon runners, kind of high endurance runners, and others to be couch potatoes. So how did they do the selection and what changed in that experiment? Yes, they started with uh, just outbred rats and they put them through an endurance exercise protocol. So they slowly increased the speed on a treadmill that the rats had to run over time. And then they measured the total distance that they ran until they exhausted. And when rats started that protocol, they could run for a few hundred meters, I think about 350 meters. And then what they would do is they would select the best runners from that initial cohort. And then every generation, they would select the best runners and they would select the worst runners and then breed those animals again. So they would progressively be selecting for the better runners and for the lower runners. And by many, many generations of selection, they created these high capacity or high endurance runners that could run much, much longer than their ancestor, the, the mouse that, or the rat that they started with. And how far were they going? Like like kilometers instead of hundreds yeah. of meters? Yeah, kilometers instead of hundreds of meters. Yeah, yeah. that's just a crazy thought. <laughs> well, how, how far were the couch potatoes not going? <laughs> Three meters? <laughs> yeah, so they, they did decrease. But of course, when you're starting at 300 meters, there's only so <laughs> yeah. far you can go down. <laughs> they start off essentially as couch potatoes. <laughs> okay, so, so then they measured a bunch of things about the physiological changes that underlie this phenotype of how far they can run. So what, what happened? Yeah, they started by measuring various traits across the oxygen transport pathway at generation seven. Not a huge number of generations. And by that point, the aerobic capacity of the high endurance runners was greater than the low endurance runners. 
And when they measured the various different steps in the oxygen transport pathway, so the capacities of different steps, what they found was that ventilation of the lungs was the same between the lines. Pulmonary diffusion capacity, so the diffusing capacity of the lungs to get oxygen into the blood, the same. Maximum cardiac outputs were the same. Pretty much everything was the same, except in the muscle. The muscle had a higher diffusing capacity for oxygen, and it had more mitochondria in it. And so, so I think the clear outcome of that study is that, well, it, it, it invalidates symorphosis. You can get, very obviously, you can get changes in aerobic capacity that are not associated with changes in the capacity of every step in the oxygen transport pathway. Just a couple of steps in that pathway can be influential and can lead to changes in the overall flux through the whole system. And that fits with what we were just saying about the large control coefficient of tissue oxygen diffusing capacity, right? So that turns out to be the thing that changed during this selection experiment, largely. Yeah. So at least initially, that was, yeah, that responded to selection. What is the diffusing capacity? I mean, I get that more mitochondria, that's straightforward, but what is diffusing capacity? Yeah. So it's determined by a few things, but one of the main things is the amount of capillaries in the tissue and the amount of erythrocytes within those capillaries. So if you've got a greater amount of hemoglobin in those capillaries and a greater surface area for oxygen to, to diffuse across, that's what determines it. This is really cool. So that was the, of all the different steps in the chain that could have changed, those are the ones that did change. And then we just talked a minute ago about why you think this could be the, the main point of control with the argument being plasticity. What I understand about plasticity is that plastic systems, it's harder for selection to act on them because they're different depending on the context. So of all of the things that could have changed, why did the change happen in the system that's so variable that selection should have a hard time acting on it? The interesting thing to think about is that when they select for high endurance runners, they're selecting on anything that could lead to an increase in running endurance. And part of that may be behavioral. And motivational. And so if they're selecting for mice that just like running a lot more, the mice just be, might be more active. So that might lead to some of the changes in endurance capacity that we see. Okay, so you're sort of dragging along this, this other oxygen transport capacity because of the some mice like to run and some mice like to watch TV. Yeah, but in this particular case, because the selection wasn't, it didn't really give the mice an obvious opportunity to train that's probably not the situation here where there might have been some plasticity within the lifetime of each rat. It probably wasn't entirely explaining this difference, but it's an interesting question. I mean, it's one that we think about in our research too. How is it that plasticity and evolution shape these, uh, these pathways? Just a quick note, we keep saying mice and switching back and forth between mice and rats, but we're talking about rats right here, right? Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll switch over to mice in a second, yeah. <laughs> but but I'm glad you said something about, about motivation because I was going to ask about that explicitly. Is it that you're selecting the couch potatoes for hatred of running, right? Like maybe they just really hate it even though they could do it. And so this raises this broader issue of how do you disentangle selection on cognitive or emotional aspects of this versus physiological? And clearly there were physiological changes, so there must have been some selection on them, I guess. But yeah. How do you disentangle those things? Yeah, well, I think they tried to do that by not giving the mice as much of an opportunity to run when they weren't actually undergoing the endurance exercise protocol. Oh, yeah. And, and this is forced running, right? It's not the mice aren't running as long as they want to. They're running to exhaustion in some forced way, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, okay. so I, d- I just did it again too. I just said mice. Oh yeah. I, I probably did too. So. Um, but I was also thinking of another really prominent artificial selection study that was done by Ted Garland and colleagues where they did actually use mice, but in that particular study, they used voluntary wheel running. So in that case, the mice would just choose to run on running wheels. And so motivation is a huge part of the story there, but it leads to many of the same changes. So we still see an evolved increase in aerobic capacity, and it hasn't been characterized across the oxygen transport pathway in the same way, but we do see changes in the muscle paralleling what we see in the high capacity, low capacity rat study. Hmm. Okay. One, one more question in this space. We talked about sort of phenotypes and behaviors and things. Have you, is anybody, do you have plans to dig into the genetic, molecular genetic details of this? Is there anything about mitochondrial density, something about the copy number of genes or the architecture of the genomes relevant for the genes that are involved in those particular phenotypes that disposes those rats to have evolved this variation as opposed to other things? Do we know? The challenge is that aerobic capacity is a really complex trait, not only from the perspective of needing a coordinated, uh, integrated function of several organ systems, but also that the genes that underlie the properties of just one step in that pathway are many. So usually it's one of these traits that requires changes in a relatively large number of genes. And there have been some genomic studies on these rats, but it does come down to many, many genes. So at generation seven, we see this particular set of changes, and then they kept the selection experiment going, and at generation 15, the outcome was different. So what was different and why? Yeah, at generation 15, there had been a continued divergence in aerobic capacity. So the difference between the high-capacity rats and the low-capacity rats was greater. And the diffusing capacity of the muscle had continued to diverge, So what had diverged at generation seven continued to diverge at generation 15. But now we saw that the high capacity rats had a higher maximum cardiac output. So their heart's ability to transport blood was now higher. And also pulmonary function was improved. We saw that the high capacity rats breathed more and the diffusing capacity of their lungs was now increased higher than what it was in the low capacity runners. And so by this later generation, now we start to see more steps in the oxygen transport pathway actually responding to selection. So is, is the answer or the explanation of this, is it that the early generations of selection operated on the thing that was the most limiting? And then once that constraint was alleviated, then there was selection on other aspects, uh, other steps in the cascade. Is, is that a reasonable way of, of restating what you said? That would be my explanation for the observations, for sure. I There wasn't actually the kind of physiological control modeling that we talked about earlier done to actually assess in this particular system whether the muscle had the greatest influence, whether the diffusing capacity of the muscle. But I would suspect that that was the case, and that's why we saw initially a response in the muscle. Got it. Has there been like the modeling done since then to examine that question, or we just don't have enough information in the rat rats to be able to do that? We have the information. It's just haven't we haven't got around to doing it. (laughs) Okay. Note note to listeners. Yeah. Okay, so we've been we've been pretending 
I've been pretending to talk about mice. Let's really talk about mice now. Let's switch over to a, a recent paper of yours and Catherine Ivey in experimental biology. This is a collaborative study with, with Zach Chabron and some other folks. Just a, a really, really cool study, a very, very cool system. But let's set the stage about these deer mice and especially your focus or the populations you focused on, these high elevation populations. So where are you working on them? What are the kinds of things that they're, that they're doing that get you excited? So paramiscus mice are found all across North America and deer mice in particular as high an elevation as you can go in North America. So right to the summits of the highest peaks in the Rockies, uh, in the Sierra Nevadas, and so up over 4,000 meters elevation. And we work on a population from Mount Evans in Colorado, so near Denver. Uh, we can actually work on the mice in situ on the summit of the mountain, and we can also bring them back to the lab and study them and breed them in the lab. And so what we've been really interested in understanding is how the oxygen transport pathway of these animals have evolved relative to their low altitude counterparts that they evolved from. And part of the reason for that is just high altitude is it's a really challenging place that really demands a high aerobic capacity. At high altitudes, it's a lot colder. So as we ascend about every kilometer, there's a drop in average temperature of about 10 degrees. And the amount of oxygen drops by about 10% every kilometer that we ascend. So these animals are living in a very cold environment. There's a very high demand to generate body heat just to maintain their body temperature. And we know from some studies of their metabolic rates is that just throughout their day-to-day uh, -day lives, they're maintaining very high metabolic rates at high altitude. And so we've been really interested to understand what consequence that requirement had on the evolution of aerobic capacity and then the underlying determinants across the oxygen transport pathway. And are there other rodents of similar size and ecology at these altitudes or are these deer mice you know, unique in that sense? There are some small mammals that are found pretty high, but not nearly as abundant as deer mice. They're, they're incredibly successful at these high altitudes. It's limited a little bit by the ecology. So where we work, it's very rocky and it's not appropriate habitat for a lot of mammals that prefer to be in, say, forested areas. But you can get other types of mammals at those kinds of altitudes when the ecology allows it. But deer mice are certainly the best known and certainly the most abundant at these really high elevations. Okay. And the other mammals that are there, are they also found at low latitude or are they sort of endemics to high altitude? So there are species like American pika, which you can find right up around the summit as well. They're probably the next most abundant small mammal at these high altitudes, but they tend to be mountain endemics. They, you don't find them outside of mountains. We can find them lower down because not all, uh, obviously not all mountains are as high as some of the ones in the Rockies, but, but they tend not to go right down to sea level the way the deer mice do. So this is a kind of like natural experiment that parallels the rat experiments that we were just talking about, right? So you have mice at high elevations that are severely challenged in terms of their sort of cardiopulmonary capacities and you're studying the evolution of the oxygen cascade, the steps in the oxygen cascade in these high elevation populations versus low elevation ones, primarily from Nebraska, right, if I remember right. So what 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 do you find? How, how are the oxygen cascades different in the high elevation mice? I guess to answer that question, I have to back up and say a little bit about how we study them, because one of the issues with studying the evolution of aerobic capacity in these animals is that 
we know that aerobic capacity is incredibly plastic in response to the environment. So because high altitude is so cold and the animals have to maintain a very high metabolic rate just to keep their bodies warm, that's a really significant source of plasticity for the animals. And so we needed a way to actually compare high altitude populations to low altitude populations in a way that controlled for that environmental effect. So what we wanted to do was be able to study the natural plasticity that the animals would experience by just being in the high altitude environment, but then also overlaid upon that, understand what was unique about the high altitude populations, how they'd evolve differently from the low altitude populations. That's why we would catch these mice and actually breed them in captivity. So what we can do is do what's called common garden experiments, where we raise mice up under common conditions and simulate the environment at sea level, but also simulate the environment at high altitude and then compare them under both of those situations. Quick te technical aside, uh, I've seen Zach's hyperbaric chambers here at University of Montana, but maybe just describe those because they're they're ultra cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we make them ourselves. Zach is actually using the same design that that we use at McMaster, but they're just made out of sewer pipes. So we take these <laughs> sewer pipes, uh, cut them to four foot lengths and just drill a couple of holes in them. One of the holes, we put a resistance valve and one we connect to a vacuum pump. And so what we do is put the mouse cages inside the sewer pipe. The vacuum pump pulls air out of the sewer pipe. And then because it's pulling air out against a resistance, it just drops the pressure in the chamber. So it's very low tech, but the vacuum pumps work really well. They're very stable. So we can, we can maintain a, a low pressure environment over many weeks and simulate the low pressure. So you can sit, simulate 14,000 feet or whatever. Yeah. And it bounces around a tiny bit, but it's kind of like the natural variation in barometric pressure in the air. So right. It's, it's weather systems coming through, yeah. right? <laughs> right. I, I love how you described the um, common garden experiment. I mean, it's a powerful study design, but what you minimize that, you know, unless people have done these common garden studies, my goodness, the amount of work to go get these wild animals and then breed them for generations, not to mention the hyperbaric chambers, you, you <laughs> dramatically undersold <laughs> the work that's involved in that kind of research. So, I mean, that, it's really impressive to, to do that even before you start collecting the data. It's a crazy amount of effort. Yeah, it's the amount of time that uh, our students have spent out trapping mice is not insignificant, but, <laughs> but it's also really fun. I mean, the great thing about this work is that we do it in beautiful places. Like, it's hard to top trapping mice at the top of a mountain and looking out over the Rockies. So it's it's pretty awesome. But, uh, and then... Just like people, not not all mice want to breed together. So <laughs> that's also a significant challenge. You know, we, tr we try and match them up in a way where they think they'll like each other and it doesn't always work. And mm -hmm. yeah, mm -hmm. mousematch.com. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, so back to Art's question about we've got these mice, common gardens, bred, hyperbaric chambers. How are they different once you've controlled for the sort of background environmental influences and trying to think about plasticity? How are the high elevation different from the low? So what we found is if we take a low altitude mouse and we expose it to a simulated high altitude environment. So if we make it hypobaric, what we find is that low altitude mouse will increase its aerobic capacity. And we measure aerobic capacity, not by measuring exercise performance, like what we talked about earlier, but we do it by simulating a very cold night. So looking at the aerobic capacity for generating body heat. So that, that low altitude mouse is plastic. It will increase its aerobic capacity in a low oxygen environment. But if we do the same thing in a high altitude mouse, then what we find is 
the high altitude mouse has a higher aerobic capacity overall, but especially after we chronically acclimate it to this low pressure environment. So it's essentially like they have this really accentuated plasticity in response to the high altitude environment compared to a low altitude mouse. So maybe let's talk about the steps in the oxygen cascade that underlie those those changes. So what are the important steps and is it once again tissue diffusing capacity that kind of comes to the fore or is it something else? Well, it seems to be several things. So we do see differences in the muscle. The muscle of a high altitude mouse is much more aerobic. So it parallels nicely the difference between high capacity and low capacity rats. The muscles have more mitochondria in them. They have more capillaries in them. They have a lot more mitochondrial enzymes. So they're just overall, they're more of a marathon runner type phenotype than a low altitude mouse is. But we also see that the high altitude mouse has a higher maximum cardiac output. So its heart can pump more blood at, uh, at its aerobic capacity. And also the amount of oxygen that the lungs extract from the air that it breathes is also greater. So for every breath that the high altitude mouse takes, it's extracting more of the oxygen from that breath. But not everything was different. The amount that the animals breathed was actually no different between a high altitude population and a low altitude population. So they're not hyperventilating, but they're extracting more oxygen from every breath. That's right. And, and how are they extracting more oxygen? Yeah, in the lungs, it comes down to a few things. We know that the lung structure of a high altitude mouse has a much higher surface area. So if we use histological approaches and microscopy to look at that structure, there's a lot more of the alveoli where gas exchange happens in a high altitude mouse. There's just a lot more surface area for oxygen diffusion. And their lungs also work a little bit better. So they're, they're better at matching where the air goes in the lungs when it's inhaled to where the blood is going. So they match airflow and blood flow in the lungs really well, more effectively than a low altitude mouse does. You know, we, we started with your surprising revolution that the high altitude populations have this reserve capacity. You put them in the hyperbaric chambers and they really ramp up. Among the just the list of traits that you just had, was there sort of relative changes? The relative changes in all of those things were consistent in the high altitude under the high altitude conditions. They all equally ramped up or were some parts of that cascade much more sensitive than others? What was really interesting is that it depended on the environment that we looked at. So some of the traits weren't really plastic. So consider the lungs, for example. When we acclimated the mice to hypoxia, they didn't really change their lung structure and they didn't really change the, the amount of oxygen that they extracted with each breath. But the high altitude mice just were better overall. But then other steps in the oxygen transport pathway, like cardiac output, increased a lot after acclimation to a low oxygen environment, and it increased more in the high altitude population. So mirroring the variation in aerobic capacity that we saw. So yeah, it really depended on the trait that you were interested in. And in some cases, the difference was, was greater than others, but yeah, it did vary between those different environments. I think 
now might be a good time to, to shift over and talk about hemoglobin, so the physiology of hemoglobin, and dive into the details of this paper led by Catherine Ivey in Journal of Experimental Biology. So maybe just set the stage for us thinking about hemoglobin. How are the hemoglobins of the high elevation mice different than those at the low, and what are the relative roles of plastic versus evolved responses in, in those populations? One of the big reasons we were interested in hemoglobin is that it's so important for determining the amount of oxygen that gets into the blood. And in the studies we were just discussing, we know that high altitude mice maintain a higher, what's called arterial oxygen saturation. So the amount of oxygen that can be carried in the arterial blood, the high altitude mice are just able to carry a lot more oxygen in their arterial blood than a low altitude mouse. And you're talking about oxygen concentration in the blood. They just, they concentrate it better in the arterial blood. Yeah. Okay. The way that hemoglobin binds oxygen, when oxygen gets into the blood, the amount of oxygen that binds to hemoglobin depends on the partial pressure of oxygen in the blood. And hemoglobin that has a really high affinity for oxygen can actually carry more oxygen at a given partial pressure than hemoglobin that has a lower affinity. What's been known for quite a long time is that high altitude mice have hemoglobin that has a higher affinity. And what this means is that when they're uh, just in the wild, they maintain higher concentrations of oxygen in their, the blood that leaves their lungs, in the arterial blood. Is it, is it known at a molecular level why the hemoglobin has a higher affinity for oxygen? Yeah, Jay Stortz has done a, a lot of really interesting work on this. Uh, there seem to be genetic changes in the different genes that lead to the hemoglobin protein. So hemoglobin is a tetramer. It's made up of four subunits, two alpha subunits and two beta subunits. And the genes that encode each of those subunits have a number of important genetic changes in high altitude populations. And all of those changes lead to an increase in the oxygen affinity. Let, let me ask a, a related question that this is something that always has kind of mystified me. And that is this idea that high affinity of hemoglobin for oxygen can help in, in hypoxic situations like at high elevation because, you know, that you, you want the hemoglobin obviously to load well and completely in the lungs when it's in there, but it also has to release the oxygen at the other end in the tissues. And so shouldn't high affinity actually interfere with that process of release in, in the tissues? And yeah, how, how physiologically do, do we and, and mice solve that problem? There, there is definitely a trade-off between those two processes. And there's probably an ideal oxygen affinity under different situations that balances that trade-off. And so for, for us at sea level, our hemoglobin oxygen affinity is actually in a pretty reasonable place to support both oxygen loading from the air and oxygen unloading in the tissues. If you're in a low oxygen environment, like at high altitude, then it's possible that that optimum, that might change a little bit. And I think the best evidence for that being true is the fact that in so many high altitude taxa, we see a higher hemoglobin oxygen affinity than we would see in their low altitude relatives. Let me ask another version of that. So I, I know there are some mechanisms that promote unloading in the tissues, things like the Bohr effect, right? So if you have lower pH or higher levels of CO2, that could encourage the hemoglobin to unload. So so is that what happens if, you, if the hemoglobin has high affinity for oxygen in the lungs, are there sort of parallel things that make it more sensitive to tissue conditions that indicate relative hypoxia so that it unloads? Yeah, I mean, that, that would be the ideal situation where you have a hemoglobin that has a high affinity to maximize the amount of oxygen you can get into the blood at the lungs, but then a really enhanced 
spore effect so that as the hemoglobin travels through the tissues, it releases as much as possible. And that's something that is seen in some animals that are good diving animals. So they, they do seem to do this. But at high altitude, at least in many situations, that doesn't seem to be the case. It's, it's not the case in high altitude deer mice. So although they have this high affinity hemoglobin, they don't have an enhanced spore effect. You know, the, the talk of hemoglobin, um, I teach evolutionary medicine. We talk about changes in human populations, you know, with, with respect to everything that we've talk, been talking about. And hemoglobin is often part of the story, but we've spent about an hour talking and only just now gotten to hemoglobin. Is that meaningful? I mean, the context of the rat studies and the, the earlier, the other work that you were doing on deer mice, is hemoglobin, somewhat surprisingly to me, just not really part of this story? I mean, not inconsequential, but is it sort of secondary or tertiary? Well, I think in the in the case of the rat study that we were talking about, those animals were being selected in a sea level environment where there's lots of oxygen in the air. And in that situation, it's much easier to fully saturate the blood with oxygen. So the hemoglobin oxygen affinity doesn't really have as much of an influence on the ability to get oxygen into the blood at the lungs. So the relative saturation, so the, the maximum amount that the hemoglobin can carry is basically achieved under a sea level condition. At high altitude, where there's less oxygen in the air, that's not the case. So saturations tend to be lower, like what we see in our high altitude deer mouse. And so it becomes a trait that's much more likely to be under selection in high altitude environments than we would see in response to just exercise training and, and selection at sea level. Is there an upper cap on the amount of hemoglobin that could be in circulation? Because, you know, the obvious way to compensate for low affinity is more of it. Is that something that you see? And I mean, even if you do see that, do you see the amount showing up in circulation that would be able to recover whatever is happening at low altitudes? Yeah, I mean, in general, the hemoglobin is part of all the processes that are involved in sending oxygen to tissues. So as we talked about before, the cardiac output matters. So the blood's ability to pump blood, the amount of hemoglobin in the blood definitely matters. And then how that hemoglobin binds oxygen matters as well. And what we often see in animals that acclimatize to high altitude or acclimate to low oxygen conditions in, in the lab is that they release more erythrocytes into the circulation. They have more red blood cells, so that increases the hemoglobin content of the blood. And that can be beneficial. The problem is it often becomes detrimental over prolonged periods of time. And initially, you might think, well, having more hemoglobin in the blood is, is really useful because it means that you can carry more oxygen in the blood. The problem is by having more red blood cells in the blood, the blood gets more viscous. And so the heart has a harder time pumping it. So although we will increase our, the amount of red blood cells in our blood when we go up to high altitude, that might feed back and limit our heart's ability to pump that blood. So what we find in a lot of high altitude populations is actually that they don't increase the amount of hemoglobin in their blood as much as low altitude populations do. So that doesn't seem to be an approach that they use to maintain the amount of oxygen they can send to tissues. And they've instead changed how the hemoglobin binds the oxygen. Yeah. So that, that, if I'm understanding you, the extra part of that would be that the average red blood cell can't make any more hemoglobin because otherwise, you know, same number of red blood cells, but more hemoglobin per red blood cell. That's also not an option. That's right. There's some, sometimes people see small changes in the amount of hemoglobin packed into each red blood cell, but there's only so much that you can pack into a cell. Cells are already packed pretty full. 
before we move away from the Ivy paper, uh, we want to talk about one of these other major findings from this paper, which is that you found that the kind of hemoglobin the mice have also affects the patterns of their breathing. So tell us about that unexpected link. How, how does, like, what, what, what's the pattern and how does it arise? Yeah, when we went into this work, what we were really interested in doing is just asking the question, what influence does hemoglobin have over aerobic capacity? So early we talked about the need to have empirical studies to manipulate different steps in the oxygen transport pathway and see what influence it will have over aerobic capacity. So that's essentially what we set out to do. And instead of, say, using a pharmacological approach to manipulate it, what we decided to do is take advantage of a breeding approach where we could look at the influence of different hemoglobin genotypes in a population of mice without all the other confounding or the other associated differences that we would see between a high and low altitude population. So that was kind of the goal. And we also at the same time wanted to say, to ask the question if variation in hemoglobin might have any other unanticipated effects on respiratory function that people didn't really think that hemoglobin had a role in supporting. So in that study, what we did was we actually took high and low altitude mice and then we bred them together to make hybrids. And then we bred them together for another generation to make this second generation interpopulation hybrid population. And what that allowed us to do is to look at different genotypes within that population and see what the physiological effects of having a different hemoglobin genotype would be. And so by hybridizing the mice, we kind of mix up all the, the genes in the mouse. Yeah, I was going to ask, so, so you're sort of homogenizing the overall genetic background, but then looking at the hemoglobin genotype and asking what's the effect of that against this hybrid background? Yeah, it, it's not quite as good as, say, inducing a mutation in the hemoglobin gene to change a high altitude hemoglobin or a low altitude hemoglobin into a high altitude hemoglobin, but it's kind of the next best thing. That's what we wanted to be able to do. And what we found was this unanticipated effect where having a high altitude hemoglobin gene actually changed the way in which the mice breathe. So normally we just think about hemoglobin being really important for transporting oxygen throughout the body and the circulation. We don't really think about it having a role in regulating the way in which an animal breathes. But there was a really strong association between hemoglobin genotype and the depth of breaths that the mice would take. Hmm, super cool. So how, like physiologically, how does that happen? What's the link? Well, that's something that we don't know yet. So th there's, a, there's a range of possibilities. So mice with a high altitude alpha globin specifically, they just take these much deeper breaths. And that's useful because it means that they can actually get more oxygen into the blood. So the hemoglobin oxygen affinity influences how much oxygen they can carry in the blood at any partial pressure, but by breathing deeper, they're just actually improving gas exchange across the lungs as well and further enhancing the amount of oxygen uptake. How it arises is something we don't yet understand. And not to put you on the spot, but like any, any best guesses or is it just too early to even say? No, I, I, there's a couple of ideas that we've been floating around. One intriguing possibility comes from the fact that globins, globin genes, alpha globin, beta globin are expressed in other types of cells, not just in erythrocytes. So hemoglobins and their, their subunits can be expressed in endothelial cells. They can be expressed in neurons. They can, and they can be expressed in other cells as well. And their function in those tissues is just starting to be understood. And sometimes they even associate with mitochondria. So 
it's quite possible that those globins are being expressed in other types of cells that influence breathing. So say that the neurons that are responsible for dictating the way in which organisms breathe. So this would be maybe hemoglobins acting as oxygen sensors instead of oxygen transporters, essentially. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, oh, that's super cool. Another possibility is that these mice have had the hemoglobin that they have from shortly after birth right up to adulthood. So there could be plasticity in response to this prolonged change in hemoglobin in the blood. There may not be a direct effect of hemoglobin in red blood cells on breathing, but by chronically manipulating the way in which the blood binds oxygen over long periods of time throughout life, this may lead to some adjustments in respiratory physiology over time. Cool, cool. And are you guys trying to sort those possibilities out now? Is that... Yeah, we've got some experiments going on right now to figure that out. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> Well, Graham, this has really been awesome. I mean, I've learned a ton. It's always fun to talk about rodents and physiology, of course, is never something too far from arts and, and my hearts. Um, let's scale out before wrapping. Let's try to scale out. And I'm interested to, to hear what you're thinking about physiological systems generally. With what you've been doing and the studies that we've been talking about, how are you thinking about the general evolution, if it even makes sense to think about those kinds of things, the general evolution of physiological systems with this sort of there's some function that needs to happen, but many, many, many different complex steps, some of which may be intertwined with other systems and other functions. My goodness, how do those things evolve? Yeah, I think it comes down to a few different things. I mean, most importantly, for any evolutionary process, you need heritable variation in a trait. So that's, of course, necessary. But I think what the data currently suggests to us is that there is variation across physiological systems in the capacity uh, or the control by different steps in those pathways. So, in, and this is probably true for many physiological systems that involve a number of component parts. Some parts of that system will have more influence on the overall function than other parts. And so if we think about what could actually elicit an evolutionary response to selection, so in response to, in our particular case, uh, demand for increases in aerobic capacity, it makes a lot of sense that those steps in a process or components of a process that have more influence are going to be the most likely to evolve. And I think the evidence probably supports that at this point in regards to how we, we often see evolved changes in muscles to increase oxygen diffusing capacity and the, the amount of mitochondria and tissues. It seems to be that that trait probably has a more controlling influence and often responds to selection. And I think that's likely across lots of different physiological systems. The ex then extension of that is that if you have differences between different lineages, so if some lineages that control isn't as great and there's more control vested in other steps in a, or other components of a system, then you might see different evolutionary responses as a function of that starting point. And that may explain why in some lineages we, we do see parallel change or convergent changes, very similar responses to selection. Whereas in some others, they may take a different evolutionary path. Can I ask you to step outside of oxygen transport and give an example or you know, even speculate about some other system and where that pinch point might be? Is there something special about 
tissue delivery that might transfer to some other physiological system and hint at that pinch point of control? And I think your answer might be, well, most everything is possibly on the table, given the second part of what you just said. Different lineages might solve every problem or the same problem differently. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. And certainly it apply, it, the ideas should apply to other physiological systems as well. There's lots of systems that have multiple steps in them, whether we're talking about metabolic pathways within cells or other things that need to be moved around the body. So nutrients, for example, of course, we, we swallow them and they get into the gastrointestinal tract. And there's multiple steps in getting those nutrients from the gastrointestinal tract into the blood, to the tissues where they're stored, or to the tissues where they're used to support metabolism. So these types of principles could certainly apply for sure. Well, that's staggering. <laughs> It'd be nice to have some sort of general theme about that's going to be this point of the control system as opposed to this point, but maybe it that's just unreasonable. There's biology for you, Marty. Uh, let, let me just maybe propose one other potentially general rule which seems to come out of this conversation, and that is that in these complex physiological systems, we have multiple parts, but those parts are not always just devoted to getting the flux through the focal pathway, right? Those parts also have linkages out to other traits. And so would you say that that is a consistent constraint on the evolution of complex systems. And I, I guess I guess the, the broad way of saying that is like how important is pleiotropy in these complex systems? I think that that's where we need to go with this kind of research is to understand situations where we do see evolutionary responses for those traits that should have the most influence and where we don't. And why is it when we don't see a response in a trait that should have the most influence over the function of a system, is that because there's some constraint? Is that because that tissue has some other role that precludes it from changing just to support oxygen transport or some particular process? And so, so that's where we, we just need to study this in more systems to understand when and when we do not see changes that are predictable. That suggests that, I mean, I just wonder what you think about applying a more explicitly network systems perspective to the kind of research that you're doing, would it be possible to sort of take steps in the oxygen transport and use and attribute, well, this step also belongs in this, that, and the other system, and that step belongs in no other system, right? Where you could try to get a sense like we would do in the context of a network, think about things as nodes, attribute more connectivity to this node than that node. Has that been attempted? Is it too sort of abstract or empirically intractable? Or what are, you, what are other people thinking about that? I haven't seen it in this context, but it's obviously something that would be really interesting to do. It's definitely beyond my mathematical abilities. but um, <laughs> Me too, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I've seen more systems approaches applied to the oxygen transport pathway, but not incorporating things like the, the circulation of blood influences. I think it'd be really interesting to do that kind of whole animal model of physiology. I mean, that's what it really needs. It's like you need the, the full physiome. You need to understand. I think science is aspiring to do that, to be able to model an entire organism. But it's pretty complicated. But but once we're at the point where we could do that, then, then that would be great. <laughs> well, Graham, it's been just a thrill to talk to you about this stuff. I, I love it all. And uh, it's really fun to dig into the, the details with you. Um, before we go, we, we always like to give our guests just a chance to say anything else that we haven't haven't covered. Is there anything else you'd like to say? I don't think so. I, I don't think so. Um, yeah. Awesome. Thank you, Graham. We really appreciate it. Thanks. This has been great. I really enjoyed chatting with you. A 
Thanks for listening to this episode. If you like what you hear, let us know via Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you don't, we'd love to know that too. All feedback is good feedback. Thanks to Steve Lane, who manages the website, and Ruth Demery and Brad Van Paraden for producing the episode. Thanks also to interns Natasha Damright, Jordan Greer, Arby Smith, and Kyle Smith for helping produce the episode. Katie Shimeri produces our fantastic cover art. Thanks also to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida, the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana, and the National Science Foundation for support. Music on the episode is from Pottington Bear and Tieran Costello. 